Hey, business owners, ever wondered what happens when you take a payment? Well, there's a whole world of transactions powered by Elevon. Whether it's through currency converting, security asserting, business supporting, real-time reporting, e-com providing, or expert advising, <laughs> Elevon supports all payments for your business. To find out more, visit elevon.ie. Elevon, your world of payments. Elevon Financial Services, DAC trading as Elevon Merchant Services, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. The Big Tech Show brought to you by Elevon. Elevon makes payment taking simple, freeing you up to focus on your business. You take on the world, they'll take care of the payments. See elevon.ie for more. When it comes to big tech, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner, Helen Dixon, influences outcomes more than almost any other person in Europe. But it's been a challenging year for her office in Dublin. As fines and enforcement have ramped up, so has criticism from some quarters that Ireland is somehow soft on big tech or isn't moving quickly enough on complaints. I met Helen Dixon to talk through some of these issues. Helen Dixon, how would you summarise the year that you've had? 2021, uh, I would summarise it as a year of growing momentum for the DPC. Um, I, I think we've gotten further into our stride uh, we've hit three years since GDPR came into application, three years of deploying our powers under the 2018 Act. And I think now we're starting to see the results emerge. Um, big uh, conclusions, I suppose, that were reached in 2021 included the WhatsApp uh, case on transparency. It, as you know, concluded with a 225 million euro fine. More importantly, though, it also concluded with an order to WhatsApp to bring its privacy policy into compliance. And we've been working on supervising that happening uh, over the last number of months. And that process is now completed. Um, it was also, of course, a year where the long running uh, what's been described by the media as a dispute over the public services card with the Department of Social Protection was concluded um, and uh, a number of other big cases that we've been inquiring into have progressed to milestone stages. So really a year of, of, of momentum gain, I think. Hmm. In your annual report, which is packed with examples of stuff that you've looked at, you summarise um, some of the other issues that your office has faced um, in the introductory remarks, you say that certain types of allegations level against this office. Uh, and you, you talk about a narrative that has emerged in which the number of cases and the quantity and size of the administrative fines levied are treated as the sole measure of success. There are lots of things I could bring up around that, but just on a basic level, do you think that your office's role is or has been misunderstood or misrepresented? I think it may not be that well understood uh, and that's for the DPC to explain it. Um, and of course, there may be an element of willful misunderstanding in some quarters of what our role is, um, but that's probably not something worth worth emphasising. I, I think maybe the starting point is the GDPR itself. The GDPR has been described in many quarters as the law of everything and it really is. 
You talk about the annual report being packed, but we had to make choices in terms of what we could fit into the annual report. Because if I was to take you through a snapshot of the several thousand complaints lodged with the DPC, you'd see such a range of understanding from the individuals that that bring issues to the DPC. So in, in one very extreme case, we had an individual who complained because a photograph of her pet was published in a, an enthusiast publication and she thought they'd use the least flattering photograph of the pet and, and was quite insistent the DPC needed to take action. And then I hope uh, you uh, did. <laughs> a certain form. And then uh, on the other end of the spectrum, of course, we have individuals who have... Um, suffered greatly in their lives seeking to make access requests for their files uh, and struggling to get access to their data and in circumstances where we're trying to investigate and intervene on their behalf. So there's a whole range of applications of data protection law. Um, and then, of course, coupled with all of that, the law of everything, it equally is applied to social media platforms. But we've talked, I think, every year about the fact that the GDPR is a technology neutral, principles based, institution neutral law. Uh, and so it's not customised to the specifics of social media platforms and a lot of the harms on social media platforms, the power base of these big, non-democratically elected, bigger than nation state entities. Not all of those issues uh, that people like to believe can be addressed by the GDPR can be addressed by the GDPR. So... It's going to, I think, take time for the GDPR not so much to bed in, but to find its level. Um, and I, I think there are issues with implementation of the GDPR, accountability under the GDPR, and then there are issues with over-implementation of the GDPR in the wrong circumstances that are equally frustrating individuals. So... We've got to keep clarifying it. We've got to keep publishing case studies, annual reports, talking about what it is we do and talking about what the priority areas uh, we can progress are. So much commentary when we talk about data privacy and regulation in Europe particularly revolves around those social media companies and their role in our lives. Your office takes a lot of commentary and criticism. Um, I'm sure you would agree that a lot of it is, is robust. You might take issue uh, with other parts of it. In the last year, though, I think one criticism or one accusation stood out, and that was an allegation that the Irish regulator wanted somehow Europe to allow Facebook and other big tech firms somehow to bypass consent for ad targeting in, in favour of a, a, a contract. Now, at the time, I remember this office issued a very, very strong uh, rebuttal around, around that, yet it still led to headlines around the world from the likes of the Washington Post and Bloomberg, headlines like Ireland is the wrong privacy watchdog for Europe. Um, I felt at the time that this office was quite affronted and angry at that uh, criticism. Um, is, was, would that be right? No, I don't think affronted and angry really describes it. I think we were concerned to clarify uh, the position. And, and of course, the position is that the European Data Protection Board engages in producing guidance on matters of general application, um, different issues on which 
the EDPB will guide are proposed by European data protection authorities and others. The DPC had indeed proposed that there should be uh, guidance developed in relation to the legal bases on which uh, platforms in particular could rely. And that's really as far as it goes. Mm. Beyond that, then there are drafts, there are iterations of of positions that are developed and ultimately guidance is is produced on a consensus basis. I think the real sting was that there was a suggestion that was brought about after the DPC had consulted or somehow jointly developed an approach with Facebook. That to me was where um, the nub of the, the issue and the coverage and the outrage around it stood. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I mean, look, what can we say? On what basis would uh, an office uh, filled with staff that are interested and have made careers out of uh, ensuring individuals can vindicate their rights, on what basis would we make a deal with any controller uh, to seek to advocate uh, for, for a particular position? Our concern, and, and it's always been our concern, uh, and you're right that it can sometimes um, be commented on that our approach differs from others, but so be it. Our concern is to take the law as it is uh, and to interpret the law as best we can and as best we read it. Uh, and and that's simply all we've done in this case. And, and ultimately, uh, this matter is going to be litigated. It has already been uh, and it will be decided by the courts. Mm, okay. Um- there have been other things as well, other uh, bits of criticism. The, uh, I was at the Web Summit in November when the European Commissioner, uh, Vera Jourova, um, said again that uh, the European Commission might try to centralise more regulatory power. This was on foot of a question, uh, actually uh, around Ireland. And uh, she said this is a permanent criticism of uh, accusations that... Ireland does not move quickly enough on big tech investigations. That was the context of the question. That was uh, that was her answer. I mean, is that something that you would be have any concern about? So at this stage, Ireland is the only common law jurisdiction in the EU. Um, and of course, fair procedures, and I think we've talked about this before, fair procedures are the same in every EU member state but the standard of review to which we're held by the courts is most certainly different in Ireland. And so that can explain a certain difference in approach in terms of how we conduct our investigations. Um, The other issue, uh, I suppose, is as well that in other jurisdictions, and you can see it in in cases that have been appealed uh, in other member states, the courts will give data protection authorities more curial deference than we would be, we would benefit from here. Third thing to say is we regulate very different entities to other European data protection authorities, uh, entities that are quick to judicially review Facebook straight out of the traps, judicially reviewed my preliminary draft decision in the transfers case in August 2020, as we know, Justice Barneville ruled against them in the judicial review in May last year, but that still tied us up for many, many months. And it takes a lot of resources to defend a judicial review of that type. Uh, 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 Another platform in 2021 
uh, sought leave to judicially review and and was going to proceed to judicially review, but we uh, resolved the issue with them by by stepping back something that we had planned to proceed with. So it makes no sense to uh, suggest that you can be bullish in bypassing procedural rights of regulated entities, particularly where the end result may be to apply fines of hundreds of millions of euros. What what multinational corporation is going to take that lying down without asserting their rights uh, every step of the way? So there are very few DPAs that have the experience we have of regulating these entities. What's very hard to understand, and we recognise this from the outside, is the amount of correspondence that an inquiry gives rise to. So you might think, well, it's fairly simple. Uh, you, you commence an inquiry, you ask them questions, you look at their responses, you make your decision. Um, it, those are not the steps that are involved. And when you're dealing with the novel law and particularly the novel procedures falling out of this Article 60 co-decision making process, and the Article 65 process, there are endless number of things that need to be clarified the first time you go through all of these processes. So in many ways, there are other ways you can sum up the performance of the DPC. You could, on the one hand, look at the fact that we are, as far as I'm aware, the administrative body in Ireland that has issued the highest ever fine. We have done that and stood it up within three years of a new and novel legal regime that also involves us acting as a in a type of ombudsman role for thousands of complaints. We have progressed significant numbers of inquiries. We uniquely in the EU have brought clarity of a type to this question of transatlantic data transfers and so on and so on. So there are different ways in which you can uh, assess our performance. But I couldn't disagree with what Vera Yarova has said that this is constantly uh, the allegation and the assertion that's made. The DPC has never shied away from saying, we'd like to do better, we always want to do better, we're learning as we go, we're speeding up as we go. But to suggest that we're in some way uniquely slow, that would be a big mistake. And, you know, remember, we're involved in this cooperation and consistency we are a concerned supervisory authority ourselves in respect of complaints lodged with us about KLM, Spotify, MasterCard, PayPal and so on. We know how long it takes to resolve those complaints and we are not out of kilter. Just on that fine, I presume you were talking about the 225 million euro uh, WhatsApp fine when you spoke about the DPC having uh, issued the highest uh, fine uh, of, of any Irish regulatory body. That fine, though, was only raised to 225 million after a process uh, by which other uh, European data regulators uh, felt that the initial proposed fine from this office was too low, wasn't it? Um, and, and that drew some quite a lot of comment as well, mainly the idea that uh, Ireland has a different uh, idea of what an appropriate fine is for a big company like Meta or Face or WhatsApp? 
That's right. The fine was increased on foot of the Article 65 decision-making process. Let's remember it was still a substantial fine that was proposed at 50 million with clear reasoning set out as to why we thought that was an appropriate level. And remember, we'd had uh, the Keneal uh, Google 50 million fine as well. So there was some element of benchmarking. And that's what Meta is now arguing in their appeal. As I understand it, they have uh, said that one of their one of the problems they have with moving 50 million to 225 million is that there was a comparative uh, case in their eyes, which, uh, which took about 50 million uh, in a fine. Nevertheless, there is still is a big gap between 50 million and 225 million. To, to most people. But, but I suppose, what's the point here? The point of the fines under the GDPR is to uh, punish for non-compliance. Um, and, and so we could talk all day about the, the actual difference between 50 and 225 million in achieving uh, that form of punishment. As I said to you at the outset, the much more important aspect of that decision, in my view, is the order we imposed on WhatsApp and the careful supervision we have given to compliance with the order. That's what makes the change. But then why That's bother with a fine at all? I mean, if if Meta can afford 50 million or 500 million, which they can, um, if the real uh, corrective measure is in making them do things differently, why do we because we're obliged to consider imposing a fine and we're obliged to consider if uh, in the circumstances such a punishment is warranted. And we considered that it was warranted because this was a very large platform with large resources, with a large number of users uh, and that should have been capable of complying uh, in, in a better way with the GDPR. So in our view, the punishment, we were obliged to consider it mm. and having considered it, it was warranted. The basis for us to spend another 10 minutes debating the 50 to 225, I, I'm not sure where we'll we'll arrive uh, at the end of it. Yeah, no, sure. It, look, the reason that this comes up and that these questions come up is because of this narrative that you will be well aware of because um, you've, you've read it in, in articles that I've mentioned in Bloomberg, Washington Post and particularly in Europe. There is a narrative there that Ireland is kind of soft on big tech companies. I've asked you about this every year. Uh, I'm asking you about it again, that that narrative is out there. I, I, I suppose at a certain point we have to ask, is it borne out by the evidence though? And we have four more decisions now in the co-decision making process. It's likely we'll announce the finalised decision in one of them in the next fortnight based on where it's tracking. So the cases are coming through. If anything, I thought last year, from our point of view, was probably more characterised by disagreement with the decisions we're making or the proposed decisions that we're making than the conversation of there are no decisions. Um, so we really de do need to look at the evidence and we do need to look at what's possible and feasible within three years of a brand new legal regime that involves so much. You know, it, it, there are lots of aspects of the annual report you and I aren't going to talk about today and, and, and that's perfectly that's reasonable. That's because it's about a thousand pages long. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's not a thousand. But but there are lots of areas you're not interested in. You don't really want to know about the 47 you. binding corporate yep. rules that are a thousand pages mm-hmm. long each that we review uh, and that, w- that were one of the top reviewers for amongst the EU data protection authorities. You're not that interested in the three and a half thousand complaints that we've resolved this year and the individual ins and outs of them. The law enforcement uh, complaints that we've resolved, the issues to do with so many of the breaches that we've handled. There are so many aspects, mandatory aspects to our role. Uh, It's appropriate that you will focus on big tech and many do focus on big tech. The results, I would suggest, are starting to appear. The annual report also details progress on so many other big tech files that are now going to move through uh, into the Article 60 decision-making process Mm -hmm. this year. You can also look back, I suppose, as well, and I think we've talked about this before at EU competition law and when it started um, in, in Europe and when the first fines began to emerge. And it was years into that competition law regime. So as you say, there are many ways to characterize what we are doing. There are many reasons to suggest we can do better and we're focused on doing better and we've published a five-year strategy setting out our stall on how we want to better prioritise and deliver more for more people. Um, But equally, I would say, and I've said this before, the criticisms and many of the publications you've cited multiple times now in this interview are all quoting one or two sources uh, in in terms of the criticisms. Um, and it's repeated and it's amplified. So That's the way the world works though, isn't it? It, it, it sure is. I'm merely making the comment that um, for you in terms of asking me, and I believe you're asking me sincerely to comment on it, you've really got to weigh it up yourself in terms of where you see the evidence pointing as regards uh, what we deliver. Okay, just in terms of what's going to happen this year, you mentioned and the annual report does go through some of the uh, processes that are currently underway. I mean, there are probably 20, 25 open inquiries, are there, into big tech companies at the moment? We've listed in the annual report about 20 inquiries Mm -hmm. where we've progressed to a milestone stage and that are going to start moving through, yeah, into final decision. And how many would you expect we would see this year, 2022? How many decisions do you think we would see? It's very, very difficult to say. And the reason it's difficult to say is that, in in fact, a number of the inquiries that we've listed in the annual report uh, that we're at final milestone stage, you're going to see them published on our website next week. We've concluded them since we uh, published the annual report in in January and February of this year. Um, In other cases, the reason it's difficult to say is that for starters, we don't know when we're going to be judicially reviewed and halted in our tracks. Secondly, the um, the number of controllers that request extensions and that that cite various reasons why they need extensions in terms of making submissions that's a constant for us, uh, and you always have to weigh up. Well, are are we going to insist despite the reasons that are uh, quoted for requesting an extension? Are we going to insist on ploughing ahead and risk being judicially reviewed for? for cutting them short unreasonably or are we going to grant the extension? So things can roll on longer. And then, of course, the Article 60 process 
is adding on many, many, many months to mm. each case. It inevitably does. And if it goes to Article 65 dispute resolution, it adds on many more. So it's very difficult to say. But I think what I can say is with the volume in the pipeline, there's going to be a significant number of them and more than there were last year. More than there were last year. Um, as joining the the likes of Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Apple, Twitter, um, Yahoo, TikTok is now one of the companies that is being looked at. And it strikes me that TikTok is a very interesting company and maybe one that this office might look at more in the next few years. It might happen upon your radar, given how many under 18 users uh, it has and how big of a social network is. I don't think people realize quite how big TikTok is. It's pretty close to overtaking uh, Facebook proper in in this country. Um, it regularly tops the, the download charts. I'm wondering, is there anything about dealing with a social network that whose members are mostly teenagers and kids that attracts any particular extra special care or would there be anything you would be looking at differently in that context? Yeah, I, I mean, the first thing to say about TikTok is I'm not entirely sure you're statistically correct about the majority of its um, users being teenagers. Um, so it may not be a majority. It's certainly the most used social network yeah. among teens and kids in Ireland by a long shot. Yeah, yeah, sure. So in our annual report, we've detailed two very significant inquiries that we've opened and made strong progress on uh, in 2021 and now in the first two months of 2022. So exactly as you say, because there are many teenage users of, of TikTok who are children in the eyes of the law um, and equally evidence of users under 13, which is under the age cited in the terms of service TikTok offers, we have opened an inquiry to look at those very issues, to look at whether uh, children are being protected on the platform that are aged between 13 and 18, and then to look if TikTok is doing enough to verify the age and establish that users are uh, definitely over I mean, that's a tricky 13. one because mostly social networks don't have a very strong burden to try and do that, to verify that users who are under 13 in real life um, are actually verifiably uh, over 13. They most of them have a fairly simplistic process where you tick a box and then they will uh, try and monitor your your post to see whether you're, um, you know, hanging around online with uh, kids, with other kids, whether you're posting any birthdays that might be 12 or 13. But it's quite a difficult one, isn't it? It's a very difficult one. And there's no magic technological solution that allows this to be done. But there's a lot of new technologies that you'd be aware of that uh, can guesstimate ages and can do it quite accurately. Uh, using the image uh, of a user. And then there are those other methods that that you talked about. Um, and, and even the simple age gating when implemented uh, correctly uh, in terms of collecting date of birth without prompting uh, what, what dates of birth will, will get them through the age gate. All of that together uh, can lead to better verification. And I suppose that's where the punishment and the fines under GDPR come in, because if you say there's not much of uh, 
an incentive or a basis for platforms to achieve this, well, perhaps punishment will become a basis upon uh, upon which they will do it. But that's all subject to investigation. Uh, is in there, a, the in general, without it being TikTok or any other company, is there a higher standard required if a, a, a social network knows and understands that a significant number of its users are under the age of 13? Most certainly there is, because the GDPR, in not very specific terms, calls out that children merit specific protections because they may be less aware. So uh, there would be certainly, uh, it would be a massively aggravating factor in terms of any infringement found uh, if if a platform had evidence uh, of this and had failed to take reasonable actions that they yeah. could have taken. You might have seen the same service that I've seen uh, from organizations um, which have uh, done surveys in primary schools. There have been two in the last year, one particularly large one among eight to 12 year olds, which show that 70, 80, 90 percent of kids use social media or social messaging services. And if they're going to use a social media service, it tends to be a TikTok. So I think most of us know that kids do use social media. And I know we're slightly off the topic uh, here, but I'm just wondering from your office's point of view, what the particular sensibility is or sensitivity to data uh, that is um, belongs to kids and under 13s uh, when it's used on a very major social network? There are a number of issues that can arise. First of all, um, where the protections implemented around personal data for users are targeted at those age 13 and over, they're simply not taking account of users that are under 13. So features of a platform that, for example, make posts public by default, that could have very particular implications for those under 13 who simply have no hope of understanding the implications. Um, allowing users under the age of 13 use their own photos instead of avatars that they must pick from. Uh, so allowing them expose more and more of their own personal data um, could be uh, one of the types of issues that we would be looking out for. So mm -hmm. again, if there's advertising being targeted at users, uh, users under 13 could end up in circumstances where there are ads being targeted that are simply uh, inappropriate and content, of course, more generally. Um, and a real layman's question, how would this office or any DPA know that a social media company knew that a portion of its users were under 13? Uh, partly through reports. Uh, so we have... Um, we have other DPAs that have communicated information to us in relation to data subjects in their member states that we're seeking to verify. Um, reports, I suppose, from parents right. as well will also um, give evidence of it. I, mm. I think there are many ways to establish it as a matter of fact, but perhaps your question was, how would we establish that the platform knew this? Yes. And perhaps what we wouldn't establish is that the platform knew, but that they took no steps mm. to make themselves aware in circumstances where there were reports that this was happening. If we can find it, the platform can find it. Right. 
Okay. Just changing tack uh, for one second, the Public Services card was another uh, portion of the annual report devoted to the work that this office did on that. There does seem to be a few loopholes there for listeners who weren't following this. um, The basic premise is that state bodies could not require the use of the public services card outside the Department of Social Welfare and one or two others, I think, associated uh, with that department. So, for example, the National Driver Licence Service couldn't compel it absolutely as a precondition to apply for a driver's licence. So what the NDLS did, very clever, they said that you're still going to need your public services card if you want to apply for a licence online. But if you don't want to use a public services card, you can turn up offline. You can drive in the rain or turn or queue at the office to uh, to turn up, and you won't need your public services cards that way. To me, that seems that seems it's a little bit of a joke, isn't it? And that's a question for the National Drivers License. Oh, I've asked them. They, they absolutely <laughs> insist that by the letter of the law, and I, you know, I can't disagree with them. I mean, in sense, but the idea that. Um, that something that most people would naturally do online, that you have an option uh, to to do it offline. It's kind of like the uh, um, you know, going to the absolute office at the end of the world. Anyway, um, it seems it seems a bit odd. I understand the the, the question that you're posing. Um, I just wasn't going to answer the question about the joke. Right. Um, but the, so the the settlement that we uh, agreed with the Department of Social Protection, as you saw, it was published. It stated that public sector bodies can't compel individuals who don't have a public services card to obtain one for the purposes of obtaining a service. But for individuals who do have a card, they can compel them to produce it. So what what has been stated is exactly as you said, if a service has been offered, it can't compel obtaining a public services card. There has to be another avenue offered. But that other avenue cannot entail material disadvantage to the individual. And so I suppose... That has to be interpreted by uh, specified bodies and public bodies. Are they entailing a a disadvantage to users uh, in terms of the alternative avenue uh, that they're offering? And if the public services card is supposed to be such a great convenience for users and something that everyone wants to avail of and use, then a public uh, body might well ask itself why there are individuals that want to use an alternative avenue uh, and whether it really has been made as as easy or as convenient as possible for them. So, yeah, well, if I have to catch a taxi or take a bus or walk 20 miles to uh, an office in a town, if I'm living outside of a town, to apply for my driver's license because I need a public services card to do it online, I don't have one and I don't want to get one, it would strike me as being a material disadvantage, in my view. that doesn't strike the uh, the National Driver Licence Services as such, but it would seem to me to be a, a, a slightly odd one. Um, okay. We went as far as we could go. Okay. Um, you mentioned transatlantic uh, data, and that's one of the big uh, cases that you're dealing with in connection with Me- uh, Meta and Facebook. And to many people, though, 
I wonder whether you would agree that this seems like an unsolvable situation, that basically the US believes it has a right to its own methods of national security, including online surveillance to a degree, while the EU believes its citizens have a basic right not to be surveilled, including by the US. And we've all tried for years to somehow negotiate a sticking plaster to this, whether it's safe harbour or privacy shield. Um, and they've always been struck down uh, at, at the highest court in Europe as too much of a compromise. I'm just wondering, from your point of view, and you're, in, you're involved in litigation in this, isn't this a basic difference between the EU and the US that can't really be squared? It's certainly a very uh, significant set of differences uh, between the EU and the US and, and it's it's become quite bitter, uh, I, I think, over the last 12 months in terms of the frustration and stress that so many data exporters in Europe, whether European companies themselves exporting or um, European headquarters of US companies uh, exporting data back, um, I'm not sure that it can't ever be resolved. I, I, I think it can be. I think there are different solutions that are possible. Perhaps we will see a privacy shield too, where there'll be significant movement in terms of those issues around judicial remedies to which European data subjects are entitled will be addressed and where those issues of necessity and proportionality uh, of surveillance are addressed. So there could be a, another bilateral attempt at this that is an improvement on, on the versions that were struck down. Others talk about a new global treaty that really should be put in place perhaps under the OECD so that this can be resolved in a multilateral fashion uh, and in a way that recognises those competing issues you talked about at the outset, the need to gather intelligence data for security purposes, national and global security purposes, uh, against the need of individuals not to be uh, disproportionately surveilled. So I think there are solutions possible. Is the political will there to do it? And are the right people engaged on it? Or is it all centering around issues to do with an investigation of one data controller uh, based in Ireland, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, but we'll it, get on with our job, I suppose, okay. uh, in this. But I, but it, w it just would seem that someone, the EU or the US, is going to have to water down their basic position, our right to determine our own security apparatus, our right for our citizens not to be surveilled. Someone is going to have, there's going to have to be give there somewhere, surely. Well, I think the CJU has set out the blueprint for uh, what needs to happen. There needs to be necessity and proportionality. They acknowledge, of course, there there is a need to collect data uh, towards national security aims, but it must be uh, proportionate and necessary uh, and individuals need to have a right to redress uh, if they consider that they've been a victim of of disproportionate or unnecessary surveillance. But if, if the Americans see things differently, we are heading for a situation where I mean, every year Facebook in its annual report puts in a small forward-looking regulatory thing which says... Um, well, I don't think they'll need to put it in next year. We'll have come to some conclusion by by then, one anticipates. Yes, but the, the general point about the uncertainty, well, do you, you think we will have come to a, a conclusion on that larger issue? 
of of transatlantic data transfers? Oh, no, on the specific uh, investigation, the DPC is underway is what I was referencing. I think we'll have come to a conclusion. Yeah, because the larger issue that Privacy Shield and Safe Harbor tried to address, um, that's still going to be there in the background. There still isn't uh, an agreement. I know you're saying that hopefully a lot of that will be addressed in... um, uh, uh, from a judicial point of view, but the the background is still going to be there. This dis- disagreement on on, on approach, I, I think anyway, it's just, it doesn't appear to me that it's going to be resolved with this judgment. Maybe I'm wrong. But... I, I I think it will come to a conclusion because I think it's 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 coming to a head uh, across the board. But it I can't be a situation stage. where transatlantic data. Uh, is halted or somehow abridged. Surely that's unthinkable. Well, um, what the CJU said, as you know, in July 2020, in terms of standard contractual clauses, is that a case-by-case assessment is necessary from each exporter to importer and ultimately then by the supervisory authority So there is no way, based on that judgment, to invalidate all transfers to the US. It has to be done case by case. Mm. So when you say, but data flows won't stop, you're right, they won't, because how long is it going to take to go through each case by case investigation uh, to halt them? That's one of the practical issues. Um, But in the meantime, that remains very unsatisfactory for boards and shareholders that have no interest in being out of compliance and living under a threat of um, being engaged in unlawful transfers. So um, just because there won't be orders to stop every single controller exporting, it doesn't mean that it's not an issue that's causing a lot of a quick one, quick one on resources, the annual report, you refer to the volume of work being in ever intensifying. Also, I mean, 10,645 cases, 7,000 queries, 3,500 complaints and lots of other uh, stuff that you've already alluded to. The Department of Justice asked for more star staffing for the DPC and more funding, saying that the workload was increasing and that the DPC is becoming, in fact, synonymous with uh, Ireland's reputation. Um, from your point of view, do, do, or do you have enough? Could you use more? So we have a budget increase for this year. We've budgeted 23.1 million. We'll recruit at least 70 more staff this year. We'll be up to 250 staff um, easily by the end of of 2022. Um, We've talked before, this can only increase incrementally. We can't buy a company and merge and absorb the staff. We can't buy another DPA to do that either. Um, well, the acting minister, Heather Humphreys, she did, she formally asked her officials um, to look into the possibility of two more commissioners. Uh, yeah. And. Well, that would be an increase. Would that not be an incre- increase in capacity? Or? Th- that'll bring us up to 252 staff yeah, yeah. then this year. <laughs> but would that, would that increase the, the capacity of the, oh, the DPC to, to deal with stuff? No, I don't think that would uh, have any significant uh, impact on increasing capacity. I think increasing 
staff at the senior level and sanctioning more senior appointments at the DPC would assist. And we've made that point for the last two years in the submissions we've made to the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. I think creating a, a, a college of commissioners and um, collegiate decision making at the top, given the volumes that we transact with would actually slow things down. So it depends on what your aim is. But if the criticism you've cited is that Ireland is too slow, certainly adding uh, a college of commissioners that then deals with the 41 co-decision makers is is not going to speed it up. Okay, lastly, um, a long-standing issue, uh, Facebook and WhatsApp sharing data for advertising purposes not allowed in Europe is allowed uh, in the US. Any movement on that in the EU? Has Meta asked for uh, or has have they approached this office about um, doing more in that space? There have been conversations, but there is no, uh, the DPC has uh, not uh, suggested that it is satisfied there's any lawful basis for Mm. that to happen currently. And so it's not, it's uh, not in drain. Okay. um, Finally, you might be horrified at this, um, but in the purposes of journalism, I recently did a 23andMe um, DNA test. I'm waiting for my results at the moment. And I was, I, I know from a data protection point of view, this is probably not ideal. Um, do you think that's, do you think I'm mad? Do you think that's a dangerous thing to do? <laughs> no, I, I certainly don't think you're mad. I think you're a rational individual who's well aware of the risks and who's thought about it and who's, who's thought about what what you're interested in, in learning uh, through engaging in that process. Um, and so there are obviously going to be ways to mitigate the risks in terms of how you manage whatever account and profile you have and who gets access to it. But of course, we've talked, I think, before about that particularly stark case from the US where the police used, uh, I might have been 23andMe, but it was certainly one of, of those similar, similar genealogy websites to catch a serial killer. By by setting up a profile and Are you then saying contact- I'm in trouble. Or? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I'm not. But I suppose the unintended use of data, yeah. uh, the impacts on on your family members as well in terms of of participation. But um, well, my wife's horrified. But I did make the point. Look, it means if I am going to get a horrible disease in twenty years' time, I can live now. You know, I can I can prepare now and go and have a good time. That's my argument. Um, Journalistically, I'm just interested to see where it goes. Anyway, Helen Dixon, Data Protection Commissioner, thank you very much for joining us today on the Big Tech Show podcast. And for me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent, I'll talk to you the same time next week. Bye-bye. 